Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio is the fourth in a series of four audios on Matthew 5, in which we discuss the Sermon on the Mount, and more particularly the six antitheses. I've already gone through four of the antitheses, and now I'm on antithesis number five and antithesis number six. An antithesis is when Jesus says, you have heard it was said, but, there's the antithesis, I say to you. So the question is, is Jesus making a contrast, an antithesis between the law of Moses and him, what he's teaching, or is he making an antithesis, a contrast between what the Pharisees were teaching and what he was teaching? If the latter, if it was the Pharisees, then you hold a covenant theology, theology view, and if it was the former, that he's making a change in the law of Moses so that we are no longer under Moses for a rule of life, then you hold the new covenant theology position. Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is a quote from the scriptures, Exodus 21:24, from the law. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24:20, 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. So you see that in the law... This principle of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not an excuse for private revenge, is the way we take it in modern English a lot of times. It was a very complete, a very just judicial principle is that you award damages according to the damage that has been done. If it's a small damage, you give small damages to the plaintiff. If it's large damage to the plaintiff, you give him large damages from the defendant. Now, how do we interpret this judicial principle? Interestingly enough, the rabbi split on that. The Sadducees said, let's take it literally. So if I accidentally put out somebody's eye, then they'll put out my eye. Literally, put out my eye in court. That's the judicial punishment. And not only the Sadducees, but also Josephus himself took it literally. Well, I think that's pretty silly. The Jewish doctors in general uh, didn't agree with that. They say it's paying a price equivalent to the damage done, which, of course, is the way it should be. Uh, this is except in the, in the case of life having been taken, but in, if, as far as crime, uh, uh, excuse me, civil actions that were uh, less than uh, accidental death, then you came up with a money damage for the limb that was injured, and then you paid the money equivalent. That's very similar to modern tort law. I remember in, when I was in law school taking a law class, and they were talking about how do we, it might have been a damage class, I don't remember, but it was a class, it was the, the issue was how much damages do we pay to an injured plaintiff, and the insurance companies have tables lined up and a, a severed hand is worth this much, a severed limb is worth this much, an eye is worth this much, it seems so cold and calculating and horrible. I'll never forget that when I read that, but that's the way they do it. Damages are computed by the value of a body part. And the idea is so that we don't overcompensate or undercompensate an injured plaintiff. Now, this makes a lot more sense. Let's say a man's eye was injured so that one-third of his eyesight is gone. So you're going to literally, like the Sadducees said, literally, like Josephus said, are you literally going to take one-third of the eyesight of the, of the plaintiff? Excuse me, of the defendant? Take one-third of his eyesight? How are you going to do that without taking all of it? Well, that doesn't make any sense. But if you have a money money value on the value of the eyesight, take a third of that money value, and then you pay the plaintiff. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so enough of background. Let's go into the two posi possible positions on this verse, on this antithesis, the fifth antithesis, the covenant theology position 
of this eye for an eye, the so-called lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The covenant theology position is that this law, which was a perfectly reasonable judicial principle, was being misused by the rabbis. The rabbis said that this law was a sanction for private vengeance. And all three of my commentators, Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, say this. They say, all three of them say the law was meant to provide justice and sentencing in the courts, in the courts, not between private, not uh, with regard to private relations. Here's a quote from Exodus 21, 23 through 25 that shows this. But if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In other words, enforce the law. Don't enforce it too lightly and not give compensation to the plaintiff. On the other hand, don't overcompensate and give it too much. So that was the law, but the, there were also scriptures that forbade private revenge. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 24, verse 29, Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I'll get, him, I'll get revenge on him. No, you're not supposed to do that, says the author of Proverbs. And then in the law, Leviticus 19:18, you shall not take vengeance, and that means private vengeance, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. All right, so that was one way the rabbis were misusing it. They were saying eye for an eye is okay for private vengeance, despite the fact, despite two reasons. One is that the law was not meant for private vengeance. It was meant for judicial guidance for damages. And the second reason the rabbis were wrong in saying it was used for private vengeance is that Proverbs and the law itself forbade private vengeance. So the rabbis, according to the covenant theology position, were screwing this up royally and perverting Moses big time. The second way that the rabbis were misusing the law, not only by saying that it was can be used for private vengeance, the second way is that oftentimes when they would calculate a price of a limb, they would value it extremely high so that the plaintiff was getting overcompensated and he was getting more than was fair. All right, so the covenant theology positions say, look, the Old Testament scriptures already forbade private revenge. I just read those to you. Proverbs, the two Proverbs in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take private vengeance, Leviticus says. So the Old Testament scriptures already forbade private revenge. So Jesus was not changing the law of Moses when he says, turn the other cheek. He was challenging the Pharisees who were saying it's okay for private vengeance. When you say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's okay to go get what's yours. New Covenant Theology position disagrees with that. They say that when you heard that it was said, that which was said was the law of Moses, eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. The New Covenant people say that Jesus is quoting Moses literally. Exodus 21:24 says this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, straight out of Moses. Where's the evidence that the Pharisees were allowing private revenge? So the New Covenant position is this. The antithesis is between two different jurisdictions, not be- jurisdictions, not between. Not, there's no antithesis between the Pharisees and Jesus. I, and New Covenant theology says this. Look, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that works great in the judicial context in the Old Testament. But if you bring it forth into the New Testament, it doesn't work in the church context of the New Testament because we would end up with private revenge against church members. That just won't do. And turn the other cheek, on the other hand, works great in a church context. 
But if you take it back into the Old Testament, in a church context, you have brothers who are under control of the Holy Spirit. You take that back into the Old Testament where you don't have people under control of the Holy Spirit, and you've got basically a civil society, an ungodly, unregenerate civil society, and you don't enforce justice, and you just say, oh, rapist, turn your other cheek, rape victim. Oh, murderer, murder victim, oh, just turn the other cheek, family. That's not going to work. So those old covenant Jews, they needed harsher restraint. They didn't need the law of non-retaliation. They didn't need turn the other cheek. There would be no justice in the courts if that were the case. Murder and rape would go unpunished. Anarchy would result. So you, the new covenant theology position is Jesus is entirely changing the law of Moses because we are, have a change of covenants. We're going from civil kingdom to church, and it's a big change. Well, who's right about this? Well, it's not. I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised, even though I don't know where the evidence is for it, that the Pharisees were saying it's okay for private vengeance. I don't know. I've not, I haven't seen the evidence for it. Maybe it's out there, and I just haven't seen it. But even if Jesus was condemning the Pharisees for using the law wrongly for private vengeance, he was also changing the law of Moses because there's no question the law of Moses, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is being changed now to don't turn to turn the other cheek. No question. Now, the covenant theology people will come back and say, well, yeah, Exodus 20, uh, where Moses, Exodus 21, where Moses said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that was changed. But what about Leviticus 19:18? You shall not take private vengeance and bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. That's not being changed. Well, my, uh, so, and, and the argument further goes, see, therefore, the law of Moses has not been changed. It's still in effect today, and it's still a law of life for us. Well, maybe Leviticus 19.18 wasn't changed, where it says you shall not take private vengeance. You shall not take vengeance, private vengeance. That's not changed. But what about Exodus 21? That has definitely been changed. Eye for an eye, tooth for two. So how can the Reformed people say that the old covenant law has not been changed? It has been changed. So... We're under a new jurisdiction now called the law of Christ. Let's go to Matthew 5:39. We'll talk about the lex talionis some more. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Well, whether you're covenant or new covenant theology, we can all agree on this, is that we're not supposed to take private revenge. So that's the good news. There's some agreement there. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. The famous turn the other cheek verse. Now, this verse is often misinterpreted. It does not say, don't resist evil, don't resist sin, don't resist bad actions, don't resist false doctrines, don't resist Satan. We're supposed to resist those things. In fact, it's often not, it's often not a sin to resist evil in those circumstances. If somebody comes in and is about to shoot my son or to rape my wife and I shoot him. I resisted the evil and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Now I know pacifists and they don't know what they're talking about, but a lot of pacifists say that is evil. You violated the scripture. No, you haven't. That's not what Jesus meant. It cannot be what Jesus meant. I remember asking at a conference I was helping put on one time, there was a, a, a Anabaptist pacifist was eating across from me and I just couldn't help it. I, this is, I asked him, I said, well, what happens if somebody broke in the house, put a gun in for your wife? Would you shoot the gun? He says, everybody always asks me that. And I said, what do you say? He says, I don't know what I would do. I said, well, I, yeah, you can't live out. Nobody can live out that kind of ethic. I remember also when I was in college reading a history book about a minister of defense in England. I think he was a defense minister, minister of war, I think they called it, whatever they call it. And he was confronted with this first, and he said, if this means that I can't defend England, I'm not going to be a Christian. And I thought, ooh, that's serious. So I, I need to interpret this verse. I had a hard time with this. This verse has nothing to do with governments. 
It has nothing to do with church discipline. Obviously, Jesus said to resist evil, you're supposed to kick the person out of the church. Matthew 18. How about in 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul says, kick the man who's sleeping with his stepmother, kick him out. Kick him out. That is that he that he might that his flesh might be turned over to Satan so that his soul might be saved. That's resisting evil, is it not? So obviously it does not mean that. And and just human nature tells you, you know, sometimes you have to stand up for the weak and the people that are being oppressed and people being threatened. You have to. The verse does not, for example, prohibit self defense. The verse is not to be taken literally even. Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. John 18, verses 22 through 23. Jesus is standing before the high priest when he's on trial for his life, the kangaroo court. Verse 22 in John 18 says this, When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus, I forgot what the previous verse was, but Jesus was not too friendly to the high priest, and so he got hit on the cheek because of it. Got hit in the face. Got struck. Jesus answered him in verse 23, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus did not offer him another cheek. Say, hit me again, officer of the court. He rebuked him and said, put up or shut up. Give me some evidence. If I have spoken wrongly, he was in a judicial proceeding. He was not, he would, uh, he was not taking private revenge. He was merely standing up for what was right. So, we've got to understand the meaning of the verse. And the, the verse refers to private revenge when you just say i'm going to go get somebody and there's no need to get him there's no need to protect the innocent you just are angry at him and you want to get him jesus says don't do that just don't do it it's not worth it here's a quote from john gill not but that a man may lawfully defend himself and endeavor to secure himself from injuries gill is saying of course a man can do that and, and he may appear to the civil magistrate for redress of grievances. Of course he can go to court if he's gotten screwed in business or whatever. That's not what the verses talk about. But he is not to make use of private revenge. Somebody screws you and you go break into his house and, or key his car or smash his windows out or something like that. Obviously that's revenge. That's not justice. But if you go to a court and you get what's rightfully yours legally, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. But it is wrong to have revenge over somebody. Here's some scriptures that say that. Proverbs, I've already read two of them. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render, the man, I will render to the man according to his work. In other words, I'm going to go get him. No, don't do that. Here's another proverb I haven't given you yet. Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So, now, let's take this a little further. Let's say that you are acting in self-defense. Should you have any hatred toward the person that you're that's trying to kill your wife and you shoot him? You should have no hatred in your heart at all, because you are an arm of the law. You're executing justice. And you're not supposed to have private hatred in your heart. Now, that's easy to say in the abstract, of course. I remember, well, let me give you an example. For example, you have an executioner. His, his job is to pull the switch on the electric chair or to inject the, the criminal, capitally accused and convicted criminal, to eject him with a lethal injection. Is he supposed to hate that person when he does it? Is he supposed to have any hatred in his heart when he pulls the switch? No. He should have no hatred at all. In fact, he might be very sorry for him, very sad that the man is being killed, but justice has to be done. So we need to remember that. 
Matthew 5, verse 40, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. The shirt is an undergarment, and the coat is the loose outer garment. So the idea is, look, if he gets your undergarment, let him have your outer garment too. Now, what does this mean? This sounds like it contradicts the principle that I just gave about judicial self-defense being okay. It's perfectly okay to go to court. Well, now somebody wants to sue you, take his shirt, you're going to let him take some more. Well, here's some options to solve this little problem. The value of the loss is smaller than the cost of the litigation. Don't just get angry at the guy and say, I'm going to go get you. You know, you got my shirt. I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to, I'm going to keep my coat. I'm going to fight for it in court. And people will do this. I used to practice law. I remember the first case I had, a guy came in. He was owed $100. There's no question he had gotten screwed out of $100. He dug a ditch in the hot sun at the beach, and the, guy didn't, and the con- contractor didn't pay him. He ran into the contractor 20, 30 years later. And one came to me and says, I want to sue him for the $100. I said, $100, the statute of limitations ran years ago, decades ago. There's no way you're going to get it. He says, I don't care. I want justice. I said, no, you don't want justice. You want revenge. It's not worth the cost of going to court to get your pound of flesh to get your revenge. He said, I don't care. I want him. Well, I would think if you apply this verse, you say, look, he got your shirt. Let him have your coat. It's not worth fighting over it. Don't fight him over it. Uh, don't go after it. Let me read you a quote from Matthew Henry, who's quoting somebody else. If the matter be small, which we may lose without and considerable damage to our families, it is good to submit to it for peace's sake. It will not cost thee so much to buy another cloak, as it will cost thee by course of law to recover that. And therefore, unless thou canst get it again by fair means, it is better to let him take it. In other words, get your emotions out of the way, calculate the cost, and don't try to get that revenge. Again, that's the context here, too, of course, is no revenge. Uh, Here's another quote from Alfred Barnes, the famous commentator. He confines himself to smaller matters, to things of comparatively trivial interest, and says that in these we had better take wrong than to enter into strife and lawsuits. In other words, put up with some things. This is not a perfect world. There's lots of injustice in it. Put up with the injustice and don't go to court over every little thing. I remember when I was practicing law, there was a guy in town that was just famous for lawsuits. He loved to hire lawyers and sue people. It, it just it, it, it got him up in the morning. It ran a thrill through his body. No, we don't want to do that. It's better just to let it go sometimes. It's not worth the fight. Now, sometimes you have to fight. If the value is so bad that you're going to hurt your family if you let the money go, or if it's going, you know, sometimes you have to fight, but not for a coat. Let it go. I don't think it, this means absolutely that you should never, ever stand up for your rights. I think that is a perfectionistic view of the, of the Lord's, of the Sermon on the Mount that makes it irrelevant to most people because nobody can live like that. Because it's not just to live like that. Matthew 5:41. if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, the background of this is that in the ancient Near East, like, for example, in, and also in Persia, the word, uh, the Greek verb, came from a Persian word that meant press into service, according to my NIV study Bible. Here's a quote from John Gill. Among the Persians were the king's messengers, or those who rode post, and were maintained at the king's expenses, and had power to take horses and other carriages, and even men, into their service by force when they had occasion for them. So if the male the mailman was galloping along the Persian road to the far reaches of the Persian Empire, Horse got lame. He sees somebody by the side of the road. Says, "I want your horse." He had every legal authority to take it, because the mail had to run. Here's another quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown: 
This was an allusion probably to the practice of the Romans and some eastern nations who, when government dispatches had to be forwarded, obliged the people not only to furnish horses and carriages, but to give personal attendance, often at great inconvenience when required. So if the Romans, who were running Israel at the time, they needed your horse. Of course, the Jews didn't have horses. They needed your donkey, I guess, or they needed you. They say, here, take my mail, walk with me, give me food, give me lodging, whatever. You got to do it. And Jesus says, don't get angry with them. Don't start talking about your rights. Of course, they didn't have a lot of rights. They were a subjugated people. But don't start bellyaching. Don't have a bad attitude. If he forces you to do that for one mile, just be nice to him. Be nice to him and go with him to say, I, okay, no problem. I'll do it. Now, let's apply this maybe, for example, to unjust exact exaction of taxes by governments. I, I, you know, if there's any injustice, injustice in a government, just look at the U.S. tax code. I mean, half the money we spend is being wasted or spent on killing babies in abortion parlors. You know, I can think of a lot of things that's not being used properly for, and the government takes my taxes to do that. I can either have a good attitude about it or I can have a bad attitude about it or I can resist it and break the law like a lot of people like to do. Not a lot, but some people like to do. No. I think according to this verse is, hey, just be happy about it. Smile to the IRS guy and say, take my money. I'm not going to fight you over it. What about if you go to a store and you get arrested for shoplifting and you weren't shoplifting, you were just looking at the good and somebody and, and you get arrested. So you're being held before the cops come. You're being, actually, you've not been arrested, but the store personnel puts you in the store in the room in the back and says, we're going to arrest you for shoplifting. And I'm saying, no, I'm going to sue you for false imprisonment because I didn't take the goods. And it turns out you were right and they were wrong. Well, what do you do? Do you sit there and say, I'm going to sue you for false imprisonment? Or do you say, I'm sorry, just a misunderstand. I appreciate it. Appreciate you letting me go. Just go along with Don't fight. This, this, it's all about attitude in the Sermon on the Mount. Some things are not worth fighting. And this is a huge problem with human beings. We love to fight when we get screwed because we got, we've got justice on the side of our anger. And it's hard to stop that. And Jesus is saying, hold it. Stop it. Don't do it. Hassle of a fight is not worth walking an extra mile. Don't fight with the government official. Matthew 5, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, the context of this is charity loans in the Old Testament. If people were poor, or if they had, a, especially if they had a disaster, a fire, an earthquake, or something, flood, they didn't have, they couldn't get by. They would ask for loans from people, and they were called charity loans because the lender would lend the principal and could not ask for interest in return. In fact, if he did ask for interest, that was called usury, and he had violated the law when he asked for interest. So. Jesus is talking about here, give to the person who asks you for a charity loan. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you for a charity loan. It's not talking about borrowing money. If, you know, there's lots of reasons why you should not lend money to people. They go, you lend money to people. How, how many thousands of times have you seen people borrow money? I just heard a story just two days ago. A derelict daughter asked her father to borrow money to pay for her kids' school supplies. The father finds out the school supplies are already paid for by the state, and the daughter had just squandered the money, stole it from him, basically. Well, you know, you shouldn't lend to people like that. And uh, there's another case where that same father, confronted with it, the situation again, said, no, I'm not going to help you, because I don't believe you. I can give you lots of examples of that. And again, this is a misinterpretation of this verse to, to, to promiscuously apply it to all borrowing situations. No, it's somebody who's in need and needs to borrow. They're in trouble. You help them out. 
Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow. Now let's look at a parallel passage here, Luke 6.30. Give, Jesus says this, Give to everyone who asks you, and from one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. And five verses later in Luke chapter 6, But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Again, this is charity loans. Then your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Expect nothing in return. Now, what does that mean? If you lend somebody something, don't you expect something in return? You expect to get repaid, right? And that's perfectly reasonable. Well, is that what Jesus really means? Expect not to get repaid? Well, here's some options as to what that can mean. It can mean don't expect high-sounding praise because you lent to the poor. Remember, a charity loan was basically giving the interest of the loan to the poor. Don't expect praise for that. Or it could mean, option number two, don't expect the principal to return. Well, that can't be because then it wouldn't be a charity loan. It'd be a gift. Obviously, you don't expect anything in return for a gift. So that's it can't be he doesn't respect the return of principal. But what it could be is don't expect interest on it because that wasn't legal. You weren't supposed to get interest on a charity loan. Don't expect to get interest in return. Or it could be don't respect honor and thanks for giving the loan. That's what John Gill thinks. I don't really think so. I think he's, he's saying don't expect to get interest back. And this is even if it's an enemy that's in trouble, that's lost his house to a fire or flood or whatever. You don't like him, it doesn't matter. He needs money, you help him. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. All right, so we should give and lend freely to those who are in need. We should only be excused by our inability to help. If you, if you can't help, of course you can't help. This charity loan, just to show you that I'm not making this up, Exodus 22, verses 25. This is Holman Christian Standard Bible Version. If you lend money to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a money lender to him. You must not charge him interest. Now, these charity loans are pretty cool, I think, because oftentimes you give a gift to a poor person, and they'll take it for granted, and they will resent you. I've had this happen more than once. It's amazing. Just absolutely amazing the ingratitude and the, the indifference people that you help. They won't even talk about it. They won't thank you for it. It's because they feel indebted to you. They feel like you're that you're their master, that you're better than they are, that you are luckier than they are, whatever. Whatever the reason is, they feel obligated, and it just creates a nasty situation. But if you lend somebody something and give them the interest, they have to repay the principal that makes them less beholden to you. It makes them it makes them feel more honorable. It's kind of like the idea, what is it, Habitat for Humanity? People give supplies and the labor and all, but the person whose house it is has to put some sweat equity into it too. So it's not a total gift. Also, when you uh, give a charity loan and don't, and, and, and expect to get paid back, you don't get as much honor. Well, look at me, I'm a big philanthropist. Well, you're not really such a big philanthropist because you're only giving the interest, you're not giving the principal. Okay, give you a hard case applying this principle. Let me repeat the verse so we don't forget it. Matthew 5:42. give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This happened to me in China. Let's say I'm in China and there's little little kids, little girls, street beggars, and they come up to me and they say, I want some food. I've just come from a restaurant. i got food in my bag. Am I supposed to give it to them? Well, you know, I always feel guilty in these situations. Well, I didn't. And they started tearing at the bag. And they tore some food out. And they got some food. So it wasn't exactly a gift. But I found out later these little kids were managed by gang leaders from out in the countryside. And they come to the big city of Beijing. 
and they would train their little kids to go out as gangs and to beg, and then they would come back to the gang leaders, and the gang leader would take a good portion of the money, and he would give them just enough to stay alive. So basically, if I had given money to that situation, I'd be supporting organized crime. So is that Jesus mean in that situation to give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you? I don't think so. He's talking about people who are generally in need and who are generally poverty-stricken. Giving money is a difficult thing. You have got to be sure that when you give money to somebody, you don't destroy them. You don't destroy their self-worth. You don't enable their irresponsibility or, or criminal activity or alcoholism or whatever it is. And anybody who's lived for just a little bit of time on this earth knows that this is what happens. A lot of times giving is destructive instead of helpful. We're supposed to give. Giving is a wonderful thing, but it needs to be done with wisdom and discretion. All right, let's move on to Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then he's going to go to the next verse and say, but I say to you something different. Again, we have to go through this question of who was saying this, love your enemy and hate your enemy. Well, the love your enemy part is not hard. That's from Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge. This is Moses writing now. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same verse I talked about in the turn your other cheek antithesis, the fifth one. Love your neighbor as yourself, Moses said, but the hate your enemy is not there. So the covenant theology position is this. The rabbis... The Pharisees added the false gloss, hate your enemy. And so Jesus is complaining about the hate your enemy part. And therefore, he is contradicting the Pharisees and not changing the law of Moses. And therefore, the law of Moses is still valid for Christians as the rule of life. And it doesn't change as we go across the covenants. Now, here's an example of this rabbinic thinking, which, by the way, I don't know of any example of that contemporary with Jesus. Again, I really think that... The, the Reformed people assumed the rabbis were thinking this way, and maybe reasonably so, but I don't know of any actual rabbinic sayings that say that that says that. I'm not a rabbinic scholar, but you would think the, the Reformed people would present this more often than they do, unless I've just missed it. But here's some examples from the Middle Ages, long years, a thousand years after Jesus lived. This is from Maimonides. A disciple of a wise man or a scholar whom a man despises and reproaches publicly, it is forbidden him to forgive him. In other words, if a scholar is made fun of by somebody, because of the scholar's honor, uh, he can't forgive him. Because of his honor, uh, Maimonides goes on, because of his honor, if he forgives him, he's to be punished. The scholar is to be punished for forgiving him, for this is a, for forgiving the mocker, for this is a contempt of the law. But he must revenge and keep the thing as a serpent, keep that hatred, that revenge alive in his breast like a snake coiled up, until the other asks pardon of him, and then he may forgive him. So you see that typical rabbinic attitude. The New Covenant theology position is saying that actually Jesus is changing the law of Moses because even though it's true, it, it might be true the Pharisees were preaching hate your enemy, the old, Moses also has taught hate your enemy because there were tons of examples in the Old Testament where for example, God commanded the killing of all Canaanite men, women, and children. Is that is not, not hating your enemy? How about the imprecatory Psalms where David says, smash their teeth against the rocks. Is that not hating your enemy? Deuteronomy 23, verse 6 says, you shall not seek their, referring to the Ammonites and the Moabites, pagan neighbors of Israel, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity. Is it that hating your enemy? And what the New Covenant theology people say is, look, the Old Testament law of Moses was a law for a 
political kingdom. And political kingdoms need militaries. And militaries can't love their enemies. <laughs> they have to destroy their enemies. That's their job, to protect the nation. But Jesus is presenting a new law, the law of Christ, not for a military community, not for a judicial community, but for the church, ruled by the Holy Spirit with different principles. The church doesn't have a military that needs to smash their teeth against the rock. So we can't pray the imprecatory psalms these days because that was for the old times under a military command. See, that's the problem. with your, If you hold to the covenant theology position, you constantly have to wonder, well, what part of the Old Testament can I apply to the New Testament? Can I pray that my enemies have their teeth smashed against the rocks? And how does that job with turn the other cheek? Well, if you're new covenant theology, you don't have to worry about that because you say, well, that made sense for the time of Moses. It was a different kingdom, different kind of law. But now we're under the church, and so the kingdom of God has different laws. We don't have a military. We don't need to smash people's teeth against the rocks. So... Jesus changes the military and judicial law of Moses. He changes it to the law of Christ, according to NCT people, New Covenant Theology people. He changes the law of Moses to the law of Christ. The law of Christ is now aimed at interpersonal relationships in the spiritual kingdom of the church. Let's move on to Matthew 5, verses 44 through 45. But I tell you, love your enemies, but in, in, in reaction to hate your enemies... Jesus is saying, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't take these judicial military principles into your interpersonal relationships and use that as an excuse to hate people. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If God can love people that have shaken their fist at him and have abused his name and profaned his name and dishonored him in every possible way and live grossly offensive, immoral lives and God still lets the rain come down and the sun come down, that's called common grace. If he does that, if he can forgive his enemies, surely we can forgive ours. That's kind of the thinking here. How about some scriptures for loving your enemies in the New Covenant? Romans 12, 20, verses 21. Romans chapter 12, verses 20 through 21. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Oh, I quoted the Old Testament psalm just a minute ago. Do not be conquered by evil. Conquer evil with good. How do you conquer evil with good? By not fighting back with your enemy and asking that his teeth be smashed against the rocks. We give him something to eat, something to good to drink. Be nice to him. First Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Talking about Jesus. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He could have threatened that all the hellfire and damnation in heaven could come down on the people who were killing him. They were committing the greatest sin in the history of the human race, deicide. And he didn't say... Come get them, God. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. First Peter 3, 9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you will call for this so that you can inherit a blessing. First Corinthians 4, 12, second part of the verse. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Don't fight back. Don't start a revolution. Put up with it. What can we say about this? Here's a great quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This is the most sublime piece of morality ever given to man. Has it appeared unreasonable and absurd to some? It has. And why? Because it is natural to man to avenge himself and plague those who plague him. And he will ever find abundant excuse for his conduct in the repeated evils he receives from others. For men are naturally hostile to each other. In other words, there's always going to be a reason to exact revenge 
and retaliation because people are nasty. They screw you all the time. Continuing on with Jameson Fawcett and Brown's quote, Jesus Christ designs to make men happy. Now, he is necessarily miserable who hates another. Our Lord prohibits that only which from its nature is opposed to man's happiness. In other words, if you want to be happy, quit trying to get revenge on people and try, quit trying to pay people back. You're never going to be happy doing that. This is therefore one of the most reasonable precepts in the universe. J Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown continue. But who can obey it? None but he who has the mind of Christ. But I have it not. Seek it from God. It is the kingdom of heaven which Christ came to establish upon earth. Such precepts were never before expressed, perhaps not even conceived with such breadth, precision, and sharpness as here. And that is why the Summer on the Mount is one of the world's greatest pieces of literature. Even non-Christians appreciate this is an ethic that nobody can live by. And everybody should live by, but they can't. Only by the Holy Spirit of Christ can people live that way. Jesus lived that way. He practiced what he preached. When he was on the cross, cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They're committing deicide, and he says, forgive them. And Jesus says, do this forgiving so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. A son has the characteristics of his Father. So he's saying, forgive so that you may be like your Father in heaven. Like Father, like Son. Here's some scriptures. Leviticus 19.2. Speak to the Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. In other words, God is holy, you be holy. God forgives, you forgive. Leviticus 20, verse 26. You are to be holy to me because I, Yahweh, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be mine. I'm holy, God is holy, you, Israel, be holy. If God can forgive the whole human race for what has been done to God and how he has been offended and he's forgiven us as Christians and the elect, uh, we've been born again. If he can forgive us, well, by golly, maybe we ought to forgive the people who screw us. 1 Peter 1, 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he, Jesus says, so that you can be like your father, sons of your father who is in heaven. In Matthew 5 here, verses 40, 44, 45. If you want to be like the son of your father in heaven, if you want to be loving and forgiving like him, well then by golly, you need to forgive your enemies and don't act, don't try to get retribution and vengeance on them. Now let's go to the last two chap verses in this book. That this chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 through 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here Jesus is saying, don't love those who are easy to love. Love the unlovable. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a hard word here. Because there's some people out there that really are pains in the rear. You just don't want to be around them. He says tax collectors love those who love them. Tax collectors, of course, were the hated tax farmers who were employed by the Romans. They didn't just collect what the Romans needed for taxes. They collected huge commissions as the Roman government farmed out their tax collectors instead of hiring them themselves. And as such, these people were rapacious, basically legalized criminals. They were legalized thieves. They were horrible people, and they were despised terribly by the people of Israel. They were considered traitors because they were working for the oppressive, conquering Roman government. But if even these type of people can love others who love them, and they do, you know, if you pay them the taxes, oh, they love you fine. What kind of a standard is that? Even those people, anybody can love people that love themselves. Even tax collectors can do that. That's not the kind of standard that Jesus wants us to live by, though. He wants us to live by the law of Christ, which is you love people that aren't lovable. You love people who don't love you. 
people who screwed you, this is the theme of the whole Summer on the Mount. Don't look for revenge. Don't look for retaliation, but love people who screw you. Now, last phrase here. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's a problem here because nobody can be perfect like God, the Heavenly Father. Is that what he meant? Well, some people say, yeah, that's what he did mean. He meant literally to be perfect like God. But Jesus, of course, understood that no one could fully attain to it in this life. He's just showing what the standard is, according to the NIV Study Bible, and the standard will be fulfilled after we die. He wanted his disciples to set their sights higher than the standards of the Pharisees, basically, and so he sets the high standard. Ah, that's plausible, but I don't think that's true. I find, I find it hard to believe that God would tell the people to do something they couldn't do. Well, maybe Gil is right. It means to be sincere and upright. The word perfect answers to a certain Hebrew word which signifies being sincere and upright. So be sincere and upright as your heavenly Father is sincere and upright. Gil quotes Deuteronomy 18 verse 13 to this effect. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Jesus, and Gil says Jesus was probably referring to that verse. So in other words, be sincere, be upright, be blameless, even as your heavenly Father is blameless in that particular aspect of loving people who don't love you. That option makes more sense to me because it's hard for me to think that Jesus would give a command that was impossible to fulfill in this life. Ladies and gentlemen, that ends my discussion of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you stay tuned as I continue next audio with Matthew 6. 